0: Welcome to Snape Chat, the voice of the snape the podcast where we discuss all things Snape, always. Join us as we dive into the world of the bravest man we ever knew in art, fanfic, meta, and more. Obviously. This is Snape-centric with episode 27. Tasha Yar 25461, and I will be celebrating Alan Rickman's birthday by discussing Madly, Deeply, the book of his diaries that was recently released. It covers his life and work from the mid-1990s till his death in 2016. I must apologize for yet another two-hour show, but there is so much to cover. Enjoy the show. This is Snape Centric, and I'm here with Tasha. Hi, how are you? I'm good, and yourself? Pretty Good. Good. It's good to have you with us. We're going to discuss Alan Rickman's Diaries, which came out as Madly Deeply. There's quite a lot to discuss. So let's get started. Super. To begin with, maybe we should talk about the different formats it has come in. You know, if mm-hmm. if the listener chooses which one they would prefer. I got the Kindle version. Okay. And also the audiobook. Mm-hmm. The audiobook is, discusses a lot, there's like a cavalcade of people that are mentioned in the diaries, so that could be confusing for audiobook people, unless they're familiar with stars of stage and screen, basically.
1: I could see how that would be the case. I do listen to quite a few audiobooks, nonfiction audiobooks, and they do become confusing every so often when I have to stop and ponder something that The person has said. And I have the paper copy, the hardback version of Madly Deeply. And there have been times where I've paused and looked down at the uh, footnotes to see who somebody is. And then I've had to look them up to to really grasp who they were, because I don't know all these people that he knows, obviously, uh, or knew.
0: Yeah, when I read it on my Kindle, it's very easy because the footnotes come right back up on the same page. Whereas if I'm reading it on my browser, on my laptop, it jumps to a page of footnotes, and then you have to find the same link to get it back, and it's kind of cumbersome. And then also, if it's not something that's listed, for example, like looking at plays and things like that, that are mentioned. It's easy on the Kindle. You just kind of, you can highlight it and then it'll, it there's a web search option that goes with it. Whereas on the laptop, you can't copy and paste. So you have to remember and type it in to your search engine, which isn't that difficult. It's just, I don't know. It's just so slick with the Kindle, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: I know many, many people who love their Kindles and reading on that. And, and it does make it easier, I would imagine. I There's something for me, something about actually holding the book, smelling the paper and, you know, having something tangible in my hands. It's not a, a flat tablet, although they have their uses, especially when you travel.
0: Yes. And also for me, it helps because I can make the print larger so it's easier to see. But yeah, I agree. You know, books are a much more sensual experience, I guess you could say. Yes. Yeah, the smell and the, the weight of the book and just everything about it. So yeah, there's definitely good points to everything. The audiobook is good if you don't have time to sit down and read, but you say spend a lot of commuting time you can you know play it then so yeah okay well there was some art that alan rickman did in his diaries and it was some of it was included in the madly deeply book so yeah let's go ahead and talk about that a little bit first one's very beautiful and sunny sunday in the park thank you
1: Yes, I was really struck by it, that not only did he have all the colors with him, I'm assuming he actually did this in the park, that he had a couple markers or pencils or whatever with him, that he just let his brain go off and and doodle while relaxing the park.
0: Yes, and basically it looks like some leaves and kind of framing the sun. And then also there's like a field of flowers at the bottom of the page. And yeah, it's just, it's just really a nice picture. And the, how do you say the layout composition, I guess, mm-hmm. is really nice.
1: It is. It is. Whether the picture came first or his text came first, either way, it is nicely done. And I know that something that you and I have talked about in book club, that reading the going through his diaries, the man was extraordinarily busy. So the fact that he took enough time to sit in a park, or even if he was sitting in the park and then went home and did this, that he took the time for himself to go do something like this, I thought was really nice because the man never seemed to stop moving.
0: Yeah, that is so true from the diaries. You can tell that just, yeah, sitting and taking the time would have been quite remarkable. He trained as an artist before going to drama school and actually worked as a graphic artist, I believe?
1: Yes. He worked as a graphic designer for a time until he was in his late 20s. And I know several graphic designers. I went to art school and I saw the kind of training they received. And it's a very high-pressured, fast-paced, meticulous job. And I'm glad that he found something that he loved to do in terms of acting. And that he was brave enough to make that switch. But it seems that he went from the frying pan into the fire in terms of high pressure, fast paced jobs. <laughs> so, But at least he loved acting more.
0: Uh-huh. Yes. And you yourself are an artist too, I believe. Is that right?
1: I am. I uh, hold two degrees, one in architecture and one in fine arts. I became an architect because I like to eat and fine artists don't generally eat very well, but I am retired. So now I paint. Uh, and if I had to do that for a living, I would be hungry. <laughs> it uh-huh. is not an easy job. Uh-huh. Uh, so reading through his diaries, I kept thinking, he just reminded me of a lot of people I knew. He reminded me of myself. And it, it was just an interesting
0: experience reading through his diaries in that sense. Mm. It's so interesting, all the different backgrounds that are found in the Snape Yes, yes. I have to
1: say, as an older person, I was kind of baffled by the amount of fans who were under the age of 35. Yes. Given that, I mean, I, I saw half of his body of work in the theaters at the time they came out. Right. <laughs> and so, but it, it is it is great that he's his work... Has lasted, and that he does have so many younger fans that can continue to, you know,
0: watch and rewatch and appreciate uh, his body of work. Yes, I am also an older person, as people probably know. I make no secret of it. I guess we could say, and it's a neat thing. But also, I think maybe the older fans are out there. They're just maybe not as in certain spaces, such as Tumblr or Discord. Yes. I know there's some on Journal and Dream With. I think there's probably a lot of fans out there who aren't even actually aware of the fandom.
1: No, I would assume so. I know that my adult children were a little taken aback when they found out I knew what Discord was and that I used it. Uh, (laughs) and uh so uh, i i did get some credibility points with them that i was trying to keep up with the times but yes i think your assumption is correct that there are a lot of older snape fan or not snape uh alan rickman fans out there who yeah they didn't grow up with a computer so that's out of their bailiwick
0: yeah actually i was not aware of the fandom myself until 2019 when i started on tumblr for some reason I think there was a reference to it on AO3, which is basically all I had interacted with. So yeah, I believe there's a lot more fans out there. I would assume so.
1: He really was an incredible actor, regardless of what he thought of himself or other people thought of him in terms of the difficulty in working with him. Something that struck me reading through his diaries, he really was an incredible actor. And regardless of whether or not his work was serious or more lighthearted, he was very good at his craft.
0: Yes, he really put a lot of thought into his acting.
1: Mm -hmm. He did. Quite some time ago, I read an interview with him online, I don't remember who did the interview? But I, it was a number of years ago. I read read this interview, and he was talking about his advice to young actors. And the advice, the piece of advice he gave most often was, "Go live your life and go live an interesting life. If you have the desire to bungee jump, go bungee jump. Or you know, go explore Nepal. Go do it. it I'm, I'm paraphrasing. He didn't say specifically to go do those two things, but to go live your life because that way, when you go to act, you have something upon which to draw from. And I thought that was a really Interesting yet true piece of advice. I just had never thought of that.
0: Yes. We'll talk a little bit more about how he advised many young artists and actors. Amon Topsa talks a little bit about it in her foreword. The next picture is from Pringle Bay, which is a place in South Africa that uh, he and Rima went to on vacation in late 2014 early 2015 and they're actually quite striking it's it's two buildings or homes and i don't know it's like all these parallel lines are like how do you do that
1: well i can tell you how it's done because i had to train to do that um (laughs) (laughs) and when i looked at looked at this those drawings i thought wow he he put actually put a little bit of time into that Uh, which was good because he was on vacation and relaxing. And he probably did it all in pencil first. Probably the clabbered siding and the the lines on the roof probably done with a ruler to begin with in pencil and then gone over in ink pen of some sort. But I did look at that and think, oh, he spent some time on that. That was not a five minute drawing. And with all his busyness, I'm glad that he had that kind of, or he took that kind of
0: time for himself. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then the next one is... It's called A Delightful Evening in the Company of Friends. And basically, it's a, uh, how would you say that? Not parody. It looks like a caricature. Caricature, yeah, of a number of people. Yes, looks like he had a bit of fun. Including one that looks like Snape, strangely enough. Yes.
1: Well, uh, considering it's dated 2013, it very well could have been... um, I find it amusing that that's the only one not colored. Maybe he just ran out of time. Maybe it's supposed to be a vampire. Ah, who knows? Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, <laughs> just interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like how he completely took over the page.
0: Yes, I don't know what you call that borders, but yeah, just colorful border all around the page. And then the last one is On the Beach in South Africa, New Year's Eve 2014. Oh, so that's from the same trip? Yes, because I know they went to South Africa a couple of times. At least I think he went there to work also in 2014 on Eye in the Sky. Anyway, so it's it's a beach scene. There's um, a number of blue umbrellas and a single white one, and sky and little bit of this ocean. And yeah, it's just a nice. I don't know. I like the composition. It is nice. It really brought
1: to mind a picture of him on the beach. Oh, Oh, yeah. I want to say mid-70s with a bunch of friends just relaxing on the beach with, you know, the umbrellas and the towels and and whatnot. Right.
0: Yeah. He and Rima tended to go to some sort of beachy area around around New Year's. Uh, Not every year, but often that seemed to be a place that they enjoyed.
1: Yes, it was probably nice to get away from everything.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, that's it for the, the drawings. There's also a picture of one of his pages. It was during uh, filming of, of Harry Potter. Does that say Harry Potter 2 on it, or?
1: it? It does. Uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows Part 2. So
0: I would assume that's the death scene. Oh. Filming the boathouse scene, so yeah. Mm-hmm. I hate to say it, but I have a really hard time reading his writing.
1: Yeah, it is not the easiest. It's almost kind of Snape-like. <laughs> so uh, yes, <laughs> yeah, it it is not the easiest, but I'm glad that at least I would assume Rima was able to read it, so that his diaries could be translated
0: and put into print. Yes, lucky for us. And it it looks like there's a little doodle of a pair of glasses on each page. I assume that that's harry potter's glasses yes i would assume so yeah and then there's some photographs of alan one with helen mirren for anthony and cleopatra and then also with Lindsay duncan for private lives those were two of the stage plays that he did during this time and of course one of hans gruber yes that was a great role for him and then with juliet stevenson for truly madly deeply which I don't know. I saw when it came out and I loved it.
1: Yes. I remember seeing it at the theater. That was definitely a tearjerker.
0: Yes. Yes. Sheriff's of Nottingham. Oh, what's what's the name of... He plays an actor playing Captain Hook in uh, An Awfully Big Adventure. That was a surprisingly good movie. That was. I I enjoyed seeing that. Uh-huh. Yeah, and and then as Colonel Brandon in uh, Sense and Sensibility. Yeah. Which, yeah, I mean, everybody's Colonel Brandon. Yeah, yeah, Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) mean, yeah, Colonel Brandon. (laughs) So for an actor who plays such an outstanding villain, he also played such a good guy.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. Also as Eamon de Valera in Michael Collins. I haven't seen that one yet. Oh really? No.
1: Oh, I I remember seeing that in the theater. Uh, I recently rewatched it. It's a, it is a good movie. It's a long movie and uh, there's some, well, the whole movie's good. Obviously it's political. So in my mind, you have to be in the right mood to, to watch that. I'd rather watch Colonel Brandon, but <laughs> that, that's my go-to feel good movie.
0: Mm-hmm. It's more of a thinking movie, I guess. Mm-hmm. It is. It is one of his thinking movies. Such a variety. And then as the voice of God in uh, Dogma, the Metatron. That was a funny movie. That was. Yes, it turns out he kind of had some back troubles after uh, hefting those 80-pound wings. I can believe
1: that. he. I mean, he wasn't an old man by any stretch of the imagination at that point, but um, he wasn't a young buck either. 80 pounds on your back day in and day out did not sound like a good
0: time. No. Let's see. Oh. Love actually with Emma Thompson and then our our beloved Snape. Mm-hmm. Okay. A photograph of Alan in front of uh, the poster for My Name is Rachel Corey, which was a play he compiled with Kathleen Viner, I think. A photograph from Perfume.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That was an excellent film. And with Colin Firth and Gambit also hysterically funny
0: yes (laughs) during filming of a little chaos which was the second film that alan directed i just watched that again last night what'd you think of it well i can understand the pace is maybe not the fastest but in order to tell the story i think it all needed to be in there yes yeah, no. It's it's a little bit of a complicated story, but I think the payoff in the end is definitely worth it.
1: Yes. I thought it was a very beautiful film in terms of the visual aspects. And I found it kind of poignant that he was acting alongside of Kate Winslet again, both of them much older now. And it was, it was a thoroughly enjoyable film.
0: Mm-hmm. And then there's kind of a clever picture of Alan with the three-way mirror. Looks like, oh, what's the... Uh, Oh, photographs from Alan's personal collection. One is with Rima on the set of A Little Chaos with him. And another of the two of them on a a vacation to Alaska. They look so relaxed. Yeah, they do. I believe that trip is described in the diaries as well. Yes. Yeah, they did a lot. Well, Alan did a ton of traveling for work, but also the two of them were able to travel quite a bit for relaxation, which was well-deserved for both of them. Yes. Okay. That's about it for the pictures. So I'll go on to the foreword by Emma Thompson, and I have a few excerpts from it.
2: The most remarkable thing about the first days after Alan died was the number of actors, poets, musicians, playwrights, and directors who wanted to express their gratitude for all the help he'd given them. I don't think I know anyone in this business who has championed more aspiring artists, nor unnearingly perceived so many great ones before they became great. Quite a number said that latterly they had been too shy to thank him personally. They had found it hard to approach him. Of all the contradictions in my blissfully contradictory friend, this is perhaps the greatest this combination of profoundly nurturing and imperturbably distant. He was not, of course, distant. He was alarmingly present at all times. The inscrutability was partly a protective shield. If anyone did approach him with anything like gratitude, or even just a question, they would be greeted with a depth of sweetness that no one who didn't know him could even guess at and he was not, of course, unflappable. I could flap him like nobody's business, and when I did, he was fierce with me, and it did me no end of good. He was generous and challenging, dangerous and comical, sexy and androgynous, virile and peculiar, temperamental and languid, fastidious and casual. My list is endless. I'm sure you can add to it. There was something of the sage about him. And had he had more confidence, a I man at all corruptible, he could probably have started his own religion. And that is just a short excerpt of this
0: excellent forward that, that Emma Thompson wrote. Here it is narrated by Bonnie Wright of uh, Ginny Weasley fame. Actually, you can see Emma reading it on a YouTube video which we'll have linked in the show notes. It's very good. It is. I watched it this morning. Yeah. I I don't know if it was specifically for the book or if it was, I don't know, Reddit is memorial service.
1: I think it was for with a book release. Okay. Because then the next thing that popped up on YouTube was an interview that she and Rima did together about the book, and Emma was wearing the same clothes. Oh, so
0: I figured out oh, that must have been for the release. Okay, okay, that's that's good to know. Yes, that's definitely worth seeking out. And after that, there's an introduction that basically goes over his life. I don't have anything from that, but the diaries themselves begin in the middle of 1993, mm-hmm. and I thought by playing a few minutes of the that you could get kind of a flavor of the diaries Mm -hmm. and also of Mm -hmm. alan's life Mm -hmm. so here we go
4: 1993 the 13th of june quiet pleasure of preparing food for friends 1 pm michael g christopher and laura hampton danny and leela webb jane and mark and reema and lily the sun emerged and we spilled into the garden the 21st of June, arrive home, switch on BBC Two, Pina Bausch, the real thing, after reading another article in the face about hot young things. She has such a graceful, determined truthfulness, and Robert Lepage pays homage, of course. The 23rd of June, 12-ish, Midland Bank to talk of possible house purchase, 1-ish, David Coppard, movies, taxes, arrangements, expenses. How does he retain his charm? Footnote, David Coppard, Alan's accountant. Fourish, Belinda Lang and her husband Hugh Fraser. Lily's birthday, but she's sick. Apparently, I upset Elaine Page on election day. My casual cruelty again. The 24th of June. Finish Christopher Hampton's Nostromo script. How do you cram that book into a movie? Maybe he has. I don't know. A morning on the phone. How few real conversations there are. Mainly a desire to present a moving target. 12. Jim. I'm not sure about all this. 4. Take Mum to Goldsboro Apartments. She's a brave soul. Feel myself persuading her. It's probably not the real answer. The 25th of June. The gym. This is hard work. PM, talk to Christopher of Nostromo, Sunset Boulevard, Andrew Lloyd Webber in tears some days ago. I'll postpone six months and bring in Hal Prince. Trevor Nunn says I need 30 seconds of dialogue in this scene. The 26th of June. 6 p.m., Coliseum. Macbeth, a strange mixture of Argentinian fascism and Dr. Findlay's casebook. The 28th of June, a race against time. Reading scripts before lunch with Belinda and Hugh, traumatized because their nanny has given notice. But typically, Belinda puts a delicious lunch on the table immaculately on time, being told at 11.30ish, It's 12.30 lunch, not 1 p.m. She's been ill and in the studio and looks a million dollars. 10.30, sleepless in Seattle. Halfway through, I think, I was in this movie. Footnote, he wasn't.
0: Okay. So, yeah, my first impressions were, oh, my gosh, he was so busy. He
1: He was. He was. He was a very busy man. But he took so much time to spend with friends and family, carving it out where he could.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of his going to shows and such, they said he often would send notes or advice to the actors. So he was, you know, kind of in a mentoring role as well as just going to support friends. In these shows, and he also enjoyed various kinds of music, including you know his tastes were very eclectic.
1: Yes, I was going to say eclectic. Yeah,
0: <laughs> from from classical to quite modern. Oh yes, and art exhibitions he he would go to those, and you know make make a few comments. Usually, he was quite taken with what he saw. He probably had a, a well-trained eye at that point, most likely yes. And unfortunately, he also went to a lot of funerals and memorial services, which tend to increase the longer one lives.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that is that is just a part of life. Mm-hmm. It is. And I think the more I suppose well-lived, the broader your circle is, the the more you'll have to attend those life-altering events, weddings and funerals and whatnot.
0: Yes, so true. And he was often asked to speak. Everyone was sort of enjoyed his voice.
1: Yeah, uh, I I wonder if it was because of that uh, factor. He had such a beautiful speaking voice and such a presence.
0: Yes. And oh, also, it wasn't really portrayed here, but there was a lot of travel for work, often It seemed like he was traveling and working and then immediately flying somewhere else to start a different job.
1: Yeah, that was something that really struck me going throughout the entire book of how often he was someplace else. And quite frankly, not that it's anyone's business, but his and Rima's. But after finishing the book and realizing exactly how much he traveled for work, it made me ponder if that was one of the deciding factors in the two of them never having children, which he was very silent on that fact when asked a few times he was asked. And it really is none of our business, but I I did wonder if they had had children and he was traveling as much as he was for his work, how much would that have impacted her career? And oh, I just wonder if they had that conversation of, yeah, we'd love to do this, but you doing what you do and me doing what I'm doing, who's going to raise the kids? So obviously we'll never know. It was just something I had wondered about. Oh, sure. After getting to the end of the book and going, wow, the man was never home.
0: Yeah. And so often it seemed like Rima was also traveling.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't say I blame her. Her partner was someplace interesting and, you know, she had the opportunity to go be with him on occasion. That does sound like a, a fun time
0: yeah I think sometimes also away from Alan, yes, there's yeah one thing about they were shopping for her trip to Jamaica, yes, you know, maybe that was a girl's trip or something like that. you know, we I don't like to think too hard on it feels intrusive, I guess, a little bit to think too hard on it,
1: yes, it as much as we the public would love to know more about the private lives of the actors or singers or whatever entertainers we enjoy and idolize they are entitled to a private life um yes so and quite rightfully so as much as it is uh i don't want to say quite a calling but as as much as they are suited to be the entertainer they are also entitled to be a private citizen and have those private moments and we're just not entitled to know about it any more than we're entitled to know about the private lives of our doctor or trashman or you know postal worker yeah
0: for sure then, having said that, it did touch on his personal life. The diaries did lots of close personal friends and his family. Uh, his mother was, you know, definitely in the picture. And he had siblings and nieces and nephews. And Rima is also there in the diaries. I'm sure a lot. Well, I'm, I was curious too, but just reading, it's like, She shows up and cheers him up or just has something really pithy to say. I don't know. Just really pretty cool.
1: Yeah. Those moments where she shows up and he makes note of the fact that she calms him or centers him or in some way, shape or form, he feels more complete or just, yeah, I guess more centered. It just really shows how well suited they are for each other that she's able to do this for him. Right. And I'm sure that he did things for her that obviously we're not reading her diary, we're reading his, so who knows what he brought to the table in terms of complimenting
0: his partner. Yeah, a few interesting things that uh, that Alan said about Rima here. 1993.
4: The 3rd of August. 10.30 to ICM to sign Deal Memo. I wish these things were more about common sense. It's embarrassing to think that discussions have to take place about the size of one's name, whether they'll pay for the laundry, how many bottles of evium water, et, blood, et cetera. Of course, if they try to rip me off. Then Rima and I go shopping for her Jamaica trip. Keep feeding her and obtaining regular cups of coffee, and it's fun in Knightsbridge. 9th of October. Talk to Rima, bless her. She can always make me laugh. 1994, The 2nd of January Lobster and steak, barbecue Talk to the Rhodesia mother and daughter Rima wonders dreamily if we will meet anyone of a left-wing persuasion Forced to converse with the fascists again over dinner She likes Rima's voice Tells us of English people who admire Rommel The 9th of January Packing Tea in the Great House down to the airport. Faff around. Bucks are past. An innocent chaos. Finally, caribear takes Rima off for a three-hour wait at Antigua Airport. Poolside barbecue for one. An odd experience, eating alone. Doesn't bear too much repetition. Sixth of March. 1 p.m., Belvedere, with Rima, Ruby, Ed, Mr. and Mrs. Wax, and the children. The full picture of Waxon Famille is something no film script could dream up. Ruby sits laughing amidst it all. A great advert for Prozac. Back to their house for tea and furniture rearranging. Belinda rings and offers Chinese food. Perfect. Horror stories of her play reduce me, along with jet lag, to silence. Rima makes up for it with brilliant defense of family benefits. I love her for that. Things balance out. 29th of March. The BBC films all day. Beryl Bainbridge arrives. Caught napping with her. Competition has seriously reared its ugly little head. The character of Captain Hook distances me somewhat. But oh boy, some of these young actors only have ambition to fall back on. A spiky, unsprung cushion... P.M. Rima arrives and a big lump of me settles. Thank God we laugh together. She's here in time to see Patty Love fly on as Peter Pan. Unmissable. 12th of June. A peaceful, sunny, quiet day. Rima marking exams in the garden. Me pottering about. Eventually reading scripts of persuasion and madness of George. Both. No nineteenth of july To Kensington Council Chamber When Remus speaks, they all shut up MP to be. twenty sixth of November Woke feeling lousy What does penicillin do? Mask the symptoms? Kid you Remus sorts it out on the phone, of course. If it's a virus, no use but no harm if it's a bacteria. It'll help. I love her certainties. 17th of December. London. Rema toddles off to the sense and sensibility screening. I'm overflowing with cold and post-rasputing confusion and decide to stay at home. She returns aglow, which for this Austin freak of all time is the greatest compliment. 1998. 18th of October. A day of relative stillness. Sleep, newspapers, planet organic, cappuccino, ironing the odd shirt, answering mail, cooking supper, thinking, thinking. Rema blessedly and unsentimentally with me. 2000. 11th of April. 7. Anna M. and Yuri A., Eve Black and David Samuel for drinks before dinner at Asagi. This is something to do more of. Put together a group of people who really have something to talk about and basically listen and enjoy their mingling. David the brain chemist, Yuri the physicist, Eve the arts administrator, marine architect, Rima and Anna knowing something about all of it. I enjoyed the noise. 12th of August. 8 a.m., Rima off to Heathrow and Tuscany. What the fuck am I doing staying behind? 2003. 14th of February. And the madness goes on. Rima's father has died. Not that it wasn't expected. He was 97. But he was their father and the creator of all that Horton-ness. 2004. 20th of March. Argentina. P.M. Rima gets the full birdwatching joy from the gardens outside the room. Ibis and lapwings by the dozen, it seems. 2007. 1st of August. Watching finally on an impulse Harry Potter 4. Beautifully shot by Roger Pratt and full of Mike Newell's humanity. Rima points out that it's the most complex of the books and the hardest to film. So, All credit. 2008. 8th of July. Campagnatico. Glorious Tuscan day for our first full day in our almost finished home on the hill. Sabrina arrives to tinker with the leaves. Tinkering is what I'm up to in the garden, in cupboards, while Rima reads. 2009. 11th of June. Eyes open. I have from nowhere a cold. The news all day is, of course, all about swine flu. Don't be ridiculous, says Rima. You'd have to have been in contact with blah, blah, blah. 2011. 31st of March. Cooked cocovin while Rima at governing body meeting and damned fine it was too. Not so much dense as fleeting in the flavor department, but spring-like. Fourth of July. Kensington Town Hall. Rima becomes an alderman and makes a firebrand speech that makes me very proud of her.
0: So that covered a lot of things. Yes. Some of their close friendships, work, travel, uh, reading scripts, and saying yay or nay. I imagine that was quite a,
1: sometimes an easy decision and some other times not. Yes. It's not like committing to Oh, I'll you know paint you a picture, and however long, much longer you know it's done, and you're on to the next thing, or or you paint simultaneous photo, uh, pictures, you know this was a year of his life he was committing and whatnot when he was figuring out what what project to work on next.
0: hmm Yeah, there were a couple of times it sounded like he was kind of not happy that he had turned something down. Yes, the English patient was one yeah he would have been good in that role Mm -hmm.
1: but he i mean he's only human he couldn't have
0: you can't say yes to everything that's yeah oh it also alluded to their homes in london actually they moved once and were preparing to move one more time when ellen passed
1: right when he passed yeah that must have been a difficult time for rima so him passing and then her and the design team or whomever she had working on the project moving forward to, you know, execute the plan despite Ellen having passed. It must have been very bittersweet.
0: Although it sounds like he was fairly involved in the design work. Yes. Which, yeah, I mean, it was something that he knew he wasn't going to be able to enjoy with Rima, but wanted to do it for her, I think. Yes. Okay, well, let's talk about his work. All righty which was a big part of his life and his diaries. I'm just going to name a few. Okay. Mesmer, An Awfully Big Adventure, Sense Sensibility, Dogma, Galaxy Quest, Something the Lord Made, Snow Cake, Sweeney Todd, A Little Chaos, Gambit, CBGB, The Butler, and Eye in the Sky. 30 films altogether were mentioned in the diaries. I'm not sure if maybe he worked on something else during that time. I don't believe so. I think he probably covered all of that. But that's, you know, you could say a lot for 12 years. Mm -hmm. He was an extraordinarily busy
1: man, getting all of that done and more in that time. One thing I really... It struck me this morning as I was reviewing the back of the book and the selections from his diaries previous to 1993, that he talked about how, what he thought of acting, what he thought the role of the actor was. And I wish that had really been put at the front of the book because read me personally reading through all of his diaries and, you know, listening to his internal monologue about working with this director or this actor or this actress and, and so on and so forth, I can certainly understand why he had the reputation of being sometimes difficult to work with because of his exacting standards and whatnot. But if they had put those earlier passages at the front so the reader could understand what Alan thought his role was as an actor, being an actor versus a a puppet, merely parroting the words that were in the script back. I think it would have been it would have gone to help explain uh or give insight into all of his passages when the book came out and of course there were spoilers everywhere. And one article headline was going on about how he thought very little of Emma Watson and her accent and you know, how he was supposedly poo-pooing the the Harry Potter actors. Okay, well, a little context would be great. She was and she was one of the youngest child actors there, and she's a child. And when you look at his work ethic, okay, I was surprised he was working with kids in the first place. But you know, it it all became more explainable that you know his his various diary entries. So sorry, I went off on a tangent.
0: <laughs> oh, that's all right. I agree. I read that review, and it was really cherry picked. Uh, negative things he had to say in the context, other positive things were n- not included. Yes, And I don't know if that's a, well, somebody I think have said reviewers, particularly in the UK, like to bring people down.
1: Well, journalists are in the business of making money. So sensationalism sells and whether it's in print or clickbait online. So I can certainly understand his frustration with journalists and interviews. So the one interview that was on the DVD extras of The Winter Guest was very low key and very insightful. And I think that that was not the norm for him or or for any actor and whatnot. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, he referred to the same five questions. (laughs) I'm sure at least one had to do with uh, Die Hard. Yes.
1: Which I I understand. People are interested. I thought it was interesting throughout his body of work that he'd go off and choose something more thoughtful, more serious, and then go off and do something that was more lighthearted, more palatable to the masses. And it made me think of the careers of various friends and associates who are working in the fine arts of I want to do something that's meaningful, but meaningful doesn't always make money and you still need to eat. So you go off and do something that is more marketable and the back and forth through that. Cause he does something like Mesmer or an awfully big adventure. And then he goes and does Harry Potter. Now, Harry Potter was great and whatnot, but it was not to the
0: same level as some of the deeper films he did. Yes. Yes. Also, as an actor, he was in, during this time, Anthony and Cleopatra, Private Lives, The Creditors, John Gabriel Borkman, and Seminar. So, And there's also directing, which we'll get to in just a bit. I wanted to play an excerpt of the things he had to say about Sense and Sensibility next.
4: Second of May. 6:15 wake up for my first actual day on sense and sensibility. Makeup and hair becomes a gentle negotiation. Hair, especially heated rollers eventually wins. And the day is spent walking out of this beautiful church towards Luciana Arighi's thatched barn and hayricks in green green fields. Tea in the small hotel nearby. Kate W. looking so beautiful in her gilded wedding gown. Emma T. with her eyes everywhere. Harriet W. and I uncool enough to admit just enjoying being here. Drinks in the bar at 8 p.m. Emma, Imelda, Hugh Laurie, Hugh G., Gemma Jones, Harriet, Kate W. Hugh G. his usual snappy, sharp, acid self. Into dinner with two times Hugh, Harriet, and me. Fortunately, the conversation moves away from gossip, and we talk of British and U.S. film production. Too much irony? Hugh Laurie turns out to be an action movie freak. Hugh G. is fascinated by figures, fees, percentage. Fourth of May. I'm beginning to get the hang of ang. He came by to have a chat. What are you going to do as Brandon? I can only show him and talk in generalized terms. By the end, he and everyone seems happy. But I could go to Plymouth for the 6.35 to London. 10th of May. And another day not called. Lunch on the set. Then into boots and breeches and off to the stables. Marcus is not the smoothest ride. A tank. A reluctant tank. Every stride has weight in it, which makes him very tiring to ride. After half an hour, I'm knackered. 12th of May. Another 7.30 wake-up. Another day not being used. The sun shines. They do something else. The clouds come over. They do something else. Maybe rent a car. The license is out of date. So it's weight. 13th of May. 7 a.m. call, and finally, I'm on. As it turns out, the scene becomes a nightmare of rushed decisions, manipulations, too many looks. It isn't thought through, so time is wasted on fixing the horse to the post in a totally unnecessary way, which means that acting is out the window. I end the day feeling humiliated and angry, but I can't show it. Words are expressed to Lindsay Doran, however, but that's the scene. Forever. It's no way to work. Later to Emma's party. Fight through the real depression and dance. 14th of May. Emma, Gemma, Greg Wise, and I go off for a three-hour cliff walk. This was really spectacular. England, my England. So beautiful. Mixed up with caravan parks, garden gnomes, mini waterfalls. So English. We walk in twos, threes, fours, singly. Emma still likes to be the boss. 15th of May. An alarming morning. My first with a group of actors, a scene, and ang. He opens himself so wide to be available to others' ideas, and a vagueness can creep in. Suggestions are made, the scene relaxes and yields, and good work is done. And his taste is a permanent guiding light. 31st of May. Montacute House, Somerset. Sunny, sunny day. Various scenes, we solve them together. And in three cases, one shot. Later, and the strangeness of this life sprayed with water in between takes with the contents of an Evian spray can, surrounded by the National Trust stewards. First of June. The day starts with radio reports of Christopher Reeve's accident. Chilling. Focusing. Terrible. It makes us all acutely aware of today's last shot. Footnote.
3: American Actor, 1952-2004. to 2004 best known for playing Superman, paralysed in a riding accident.
4: Later, Gemma and I get into the coach and go with the clappers, swiftly followed by Mark and I galloping down the drive four times. Thank God we separated the reins. Dinner at the hotel. Flowers on the table. Imelda makes us weep with laughter at the stories of dope scones. Second of June. Hugh Laurie and I talk of the Wonder sequel. He'd been asked, decided to say no in the end. Now, much self-torture and schadenfreude. This rings a bell. Third of June. The rain pours down, perfect for the shots which remain. Greg and I carry Kate in turn across the sodden lawn. A piece of green string is stretched to guide our progress. Then some waiting... An opportunity to start reading Tim Pat Coogan's book on De Valera, which is terrifically well-written and entertaining. Fifth of June. Today I felt a schism appear. Not permanent, but just my own desire to focus more on the work than on having a lovely time. I notice actors being treated somewhat lightly. Scenes put together moment by moment rather than taking a look at the whole scene first. 19th of June. This was a tough day. I kind of knew it would be. Antagonism and negativity took familiar toeholds, and this was added to far too much schoolmarming from Emma. I cannot puppet this stuff, or any stuff. Liz Triggs noticed the nerve endings and her arms slipped round my waist. Later, a drink in the bar with some of the sparks was a real pleasure." They so enjoy their life and the people they meet. Not a trace of cynicism.
3: Footnote. Sparks are set electricians. 20th
4: of June. A freer day, lighter breezes around the brain. 22nd of June. The square in Salisbury with the cathedral floating up behind us. As ever, words that seem so manageable on the page become intractable in a take. And with this one, a casual sorry-can-I-go-again means a major realignment of carriages, horses, extras, an army. Find a print in a Salisbury bookshop. The end-of-shoot gift panic begins. 23rd of June. Once again, the tightrope walking. Suggestions are treated just too much like irritations, and this is not an atmosphere for confrontation. Confrontation. And if it were forced, Ang would collapse from wounded pride, honor, everything.
0: It was hard getting all that stuff together. You did a lot of work putting all those those bits and
1: pieces together and whatnot. It it was interesting to hear what he had, to, what his thoughts were on filming Sense and Sensibility and whatnot. So, at one point, and it wasn't included in your clip, he I think towards the beginning he was thinking. You know, the whole book is what are these women doing, and and about their marriages and and whatnot. And oh, he yes, had a little something somewhere says, well, why aren't we worried about who Colonel Brandon's marrying? And I thought, oh yeah, that's a good point. That is his character, and and he should be thinking about the inner life of his character. But you know, Colonel Brandon was male, <laughs> and he had money. Yeah, so he he could pretty much do as he pleased. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. <laughs> That's why we're not worried about who he's marrying.
0: Right. Yes. That came up in the promotion, which I didn't include. Still, it was a wonderful movie. And he did so well in that role. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love Jane Austen.
1: Oh, it's it's there's the way I describe it to my family, because it's often on here in my home. I like to work to background noise. And uh, those Jane Austen movies are on to the point where one of my children's first memories is of Pride and Prejudice being on TV. So anyway, I say all that to say it's, it's always nice to watch something that's feel good. And even though there's some drama in the center of it, because otherwise any story would be boring without drama, you're guaranteed your happy ending uh, at
0: the end. True. The second excerpt I have is from recording Harry Potter Part 7. No, he had a lot of unhappiness, I think, with working on all of those eight movies. Okay. I think at one point he he says, Maggie Smith says that they're overpaid extras.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they they are or were. And I can certainly understand where they're coming from. But then the cynical part of me, when I read that cynical part of me thought, you signed on to do a kid's movie of a kid's book. What did you think was going to happen? Where the protagonist is a kid. So, uh, yeah, I just kind of wondered, what did you think was going to happen? But they got paid at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, you know, they made it worth their time.
1: They did. I um, finished reading the Tom Felton autobiography, uh, which was very different than the Alan Rickman Diaries, but it was illuminating. He, Tom Felton was talking about the scene on the Astronomy Tower where he's getting ready to kill where Draco is getting ready to kill Dumbledore and Tom Felton kept screwing up the lines and Tom goes into goes into depth about how he had spent all this time practicing and he had everything nailed down, but when the time came, he just couldn't get it out and it was very frustrating to him and when they called for lunch, you know, he was apologizing to Michael Gambone about how, you know, how sorry I am, blah, 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 blah and Michael Gambone, and this does tie into the whole being paid thing, Says to Tom Felton, dear boy, for what they're paying me, keep screwing this up because this is going to pay for my new Ferrari. <laughs> and and Tom Felton goes on to say he he was shocked and then he got a laugh out of it and that made him feel better and he goes on and whatnot. But I thought, yeah, for what they were paying all those famous famous adult actors to be in this kid film, it it really was quite something.
0: Yes, that's true. The one thing I can understand is that he thought there should be more Snape, which, I mean, I I, I agree with that. Yeah, I I wouldn't say no to more Snape. Plus, they didn't really know everything he did for the longest time. No, no,
1: I think that was interesting that J.K. Rowling got him, got Alan to say yes to the movies by giving him some key information, and that Alan was uh, um, honest enough to keep it to himself. Yeah, Uh, and not share that because that would have made the book so much less without that bomb being dropped at the end
0: but yes i gave him something to work with as well i think for for his characterization
1: yes and and i'm i'm getting ready to to duck and run for cover here oh go ahead i think alan did a great job playing snape my only beef with him playing snape was he was too old um Yeah. He, he, Alan was just too old to play the character of Snape, who was in his mid thirties. And Alan did a great job. If they could have de aged him some way, (laughs) I know. (laughs) Perfect. But I kept looking at him going, thinking to myself, you know, as he's, as I'm watching these movies with my children, thinking, but he's 30 years too old. He's 20 years too old for, you know, in, in the various movies and whatnot. And, I mean, it's still perfect for the role. I don't know who else would have done a better job, but yeah, just my own personal pet peeve that he was just too old.
0: I agree. My theory is that JKR chose actors from the 90s. Yeah. You know, and at that point, he would not have been, he would have been a little too old, but not that much. And what's interesting is to me, David Dulles and... One of the other actors were born like around 1960, 1963. So if those things were shot in the 90s, they would have been the right age. Yes, yes, they would have. Yeah, yeah. And Alan was a little bit older than that, still. But uh, yeah, I mean, still great films. It's a good place to start from. I think. I think there'll be more, more to come. Yeah hopefully a miniseries or something like that. That would be fun. Yeah. If they would continue
1: to expand upon the universe. My family just watched Secrets of Dumbledore for the first time this past weekend, even though it's been out for quite some time. And it, it was it was as visually lush as the rest of the Harry Potter universe, but that's about the best thing I could say about it. Right. It just didn't have the same oomph that the original books did.
0: Yes, Whose fault was that? I don't know. (laughs) If JKR had written them by herself, would they have been better? Or was she pretty much done with the, with the world? Yeah.
1: On the one hand, it's, it's a cash cow and she could, she could just keep pumping out more Harry Potter content and be set and everyone in her family and all her descendants would be set for the rest of all their lives. She's probably got more money than the monarchy at this point, but On the other hand, as an artist, which writers are, she's got to be kind of tired and wanting to move on to something else that would spark her creative interest. So, you know, what do you do?
0: Of course, her books aren't all that great anymore either. I mean, her mysteries.
1: I haven't read anything else that she's done other than the uh, original seven Harry Potter books. So I, I don't know.
0: Oh, well. Okay, well, I'm going to play this selected excerpts from Harry Potter's Deathly Hallows
4: Part 2. 10th of September, 3 p.m., David Yates. For some reason, I have lost the edit button in Harry Potter conversations, and having unerringly spotted a fatal flaw in the Snape-Voldemort final showdown, I didn't beat about the bush. David Yates, however, does exactly what he wants. There is a kind of listening, but real stubbornness. A man who nods sympathetically and goes nowhere unplanned, or so it seems. 5th of October, Harry Potter 7, Part 2, Day 1. 5 a.m. wake up, 5.45 pick up. The cold virus whatever it is at its filthiest. All day can't speak certainly can't act unfortunately required to do both 8 p.m. home utter exhaustion 7th of october 6:45 pickup ray finds fantastically impressive all day long free and disciplined and totally voldemort chat to the documentary team doing a fly on the wall milking the cow one more time 8th of October. Reshot all my lines. Must have been a pretty dire day one. 9th of October. Reshot all my lines again. Something is very wrong, apart from the deadly nature of the lines themselves. 16th of November. 7 a.m. pick up Harry Potter. To rehearse what is called the Boathouse Scene, otherwise known as the Death of Snape an empty sound stage with David Yates, Rafe, and me. David is the most impenetrable mix of sweet-natured and immovable. He prefers really to just tell you what the story is, who you are playing, what you are thinking, and where you stand, move, sit, look. Rafe and I, in a boathouse, put our oars in, and I see David making a huge effort to let us have our heads. We start to get somewhere oxygenated. 25th of November, Harry Potter, 6.15 pickup, to the flight shed. Cold, wet, drafty, but the crew seem miles away, so Rafe and I can just get on with inching our way towards the scene. David, Y stubborn as ever about Voldemort killing me with a spell. Impossible to comprehend, not least the resultant wrath of the readers. Great working with Rafe, though direct and true, and inventive and free. Back home and Rima, narrative brain box, says, He can't kill you with a spell. The only one that would do that is a Vada cadavera, and it kills instantly. You wouldn't be able to finish the scene. 26th of November, Harry Potter, 6.15 pickup. And the scene goes on through the day, and the angles and lenses. The death of Snape nearly ten years later. At least it's just down to two actors. David is vulnerable and endearing when he's excited, and he is by this scene. It's the absolute example of what can happen when a couple of actors pick up a scene off the page and work with the story, the space, and each other. Stuart Craig's boathouse gave it something ironic and everlasting. As I said at one point to David, It's all a bit epic and Japanese. 2010. 14th of January. Harry Potter. 6.30 pickup. After a night of not sleeping at all. Scene 305. In the flight shed. Or The Last Breath of Severus Snape. The flight shed is freezing. Slush on the ground. Colder inside than out, says Chris, my driver. Here I am with Dan, Emma, and Rupert, ten years on. Emma is here on a break from Brown University. Blood all over my throat from an imagined Nagini, the three of them still with furrowed brows and panting a bit. Footnote. Nagini, a long, green, female snake. In Harry Potter, she is Voldemort's pet. Finding it hard to remember any particular scenes over the years mainly because all the decisions are taken in committee rooms and not on the floor. We listen as David Yates tells us what we are thinking and why, and in some cases recounts the story, and a small piece of something creative caves in. 17th of January, 245 River Cafe. Wonderful opportunity to poke David H. about the flight shed, nicking props What would happen if an American actor showed up? Absence of producers, etc., etc. And all provoked by him arriving with a compliment about the scene with Daniel. I have no stop buttons with some people, especially when they're smart and dumb, and there's no need. 21st of January. News this morning that I won't be needed on Harry Potter until March. It produces space in my head. 8th of March, 3.15 to Harry Potter to rehearse with Michael Gambon. Fairly quick in and out. It's clear what the scene needs. On the way back to the trailer, Michael talks of his fear of learning, forgetting his lines. And then he tells me he's doing crap's last tape. What's wrong with this picture? 10th of March, just me and Michael Gambon all day. He's vulnerable after his illness, and yesterday's primer was no joke for him. The lines are a real problem for him. Technology helps, and why not? It's never great when it's just a memory loss. No relaxation, no freedom, no contact. I'd have boards and auto cue everywhere. But anyway, when he unleashes a bit of magnificence, it's effortless and spellbinding. Michael's stories are wonderful. On Broadway, he found a job, no pay, as a motorbike mechanic with English bikes to fend off loneliness and boredom. One night doing Skylight, he couldn't open the door to get on. It was kicked down. He climbed over it. 11th of March, 7.45 pickup. In the evening at Godrick's Hollow and Snape, going into the house to find Lily. Great concentration, great crew all out in the cold until 9.30 p.m. No sight or sound of a producer and a new low in disgusting food. Cornish pasties, sausage rolls, white rolls with other sausages, more white bread with melted processed cheese, all straight from the cheapest bakery, half cold and ashamed of itself. 12th of March, the strangest feeling giving vent to Snape's emotions after years of snappy aloofness. Not funny to have the scene interrupted. Without a sorry, of course. You don't mind, do you? Yes, I do. Oh, well, don't be like that. You asked if I minded. Yes, well, I realize now that was my mistake. 22nd of March. 6.40 pickup, Snape the Headmaster. Tortuous dialogue, monologue. Slightly brain-frying. 24th to the 25th of March. Many angles, different numbers of children, Maggie going nuts waiting. 29th of March. 6.15 pickup. Last day on Harry Potter. All a bit hard to believe. I think even Daniel was shocked by the finality. Cameras were everywhere, it seemed, docu ones. So, how does it feel? before you felt it, before the feeling has a name. It's private, I managed, and I'm not sharing it with that. Pointing at his lens, sympathetic, empathetic friend this morning, embarrassed nosy Parker this afternoon. Something is in those cans, and it is finished. Thanks, Joe. 2011. 7th of July, Harry Potter 7, Part 2. It all ends To Trafalgar Square, which takes an hour Once there, red carpet's everywhere A screen, a platform, an interviewer And thousands screaming and singing Snape, Snape, Severus Snape The carpet snakes into Leicester Square for the film at 8pm I found it unsettling to watch It has to change horses midstream to tell the Snape story And the camera loses concentration Audience, however, very happy. Billingsgate later, people still happy, cannot find or hear anyone.
0: Yeah, we talked about his frustrations. On earlier shows, he refers to the three Davids. should be David Yates, David Heyman, producer, and producer David Barron, who sounds like he got a little bit feisty with them when he had the opportunity.
1: Yeah. And I can certainly understand both of their point of views. It's how any movie ever gets made is such a juggling act. the The money versus the directors versus the actors versus the the actual story trying to be told, you know, the timeline. it it's so different than being on stage where the environment's far more controlled. So you know, they they're not working with you know, whatever the weather's doing, whether or not they can get a particular site, et cetera, and so forth. It just seems like uh, such a balancing act. And I can see why everyone gets so frustrated.
0: It's funny. You couldn't tell from these excerpts that I played, but a lot of times they will have entries that are kind of negative about someone. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, I guess on Sense and Sensibility, he did talk about emma thompson wanting to be in charge and he does that and then you know a week later he's loving them you know he's saying great things about people so it's kind of a push-pull type thing i believe
1: yeah i mean given that his diaries are mostly you know for him and private, whether or not he intended to have them published or not. I think we do him as a human being a disservice if we say, oh, well, you know, here he's clearly upset with Emma on XYZ day. And then the next, you know, day or week, he's all, you know, happiness and sunshine. Well, I mean, life happens. And even though somebody, you know, you might be best spuds with somebody, It's okay to feel frustration over the actions of somebody else, regardless of how close you are. It's not normal to be all happy 24-7, 365 days a year. So, but once again, I think journalists pick out the most sensational stuff from it and blow it well out of proportion.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. And well, I think there's things that are not in the diaries, of course. I mean, like, you know, Dan Radcliffe saying that Ellen came to pretty much all his shows, either in the West End or on Broadway. So, you know, so it kind of almost sounds a little bit too negative sometimes compared to this stuff that is not in the diaries. Yeah, I would
1: imagine that Rima and whomever had, I don't want to say heavily edited them, but obviously they went through them and for both conciseness and take out anything that was truly too sensational. I guess more too personal or private.
0: Yeah, one thing I was surprised at was that when he was talking about his residences in in London, they it looks like it's the actual addresses that they didn't kind of trim that. For the one that Rima was moving into, they did not have that, thankfully. That that good point. Yeah, but I was surprised even the old ones that they that they left in there.
1: Well, if they're no longer in residence there, it didn't really matter a whole lot. I can only imagine what a circus their lives were on occasion with with his notoriety. That I know you have it further down in the outline, but uh, I was rereading the bit last night about his bout with prostate cancer, and what really struck me was, A, he only took like three weeks off, but what really, really struck me was that when it was all said and done before they left the area, that Rima was going around discreetly dumping their garbage in various public trash cans so nobody could find their leaving.
0: Oh, yeah,
1: and I thought, wow, to be that concerned, to have to be that concerned with protecting your privacy is crazy.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, so true. Yeah. sometimes he refers to the paparazzi as locusts. <laughs>
1: yeah, I could certainly understand why he felt that way.
0: Uh-huh. So not only acting, but Ellen also did a fair bit of directing. He directed most of Ruby Wax's early shows. So it had been in the 70s and 80s, I believe. It's, It's not actually in the diaries. It's just, I don't know. I heard that somewhere. And he did The Winter Guest. He directed the play and then the film, and he co-wrote this screenplay for that. Co-edited My Name is Rachel Corey and directed, directed The Creditors, and A Little Chaos, he directed and co-wrote the screenplay. And the times when he's directing, it was kind of surprising how much time he had to devote to that, that he, it was time when he was not acting or or things like that.
1: Right. The Winter Guest was fabulous. Yeah, I love that. It was in both in reading the diary and watching the DVD extras. What struck me about The Winter Guest was that this was his first time directing a film, I believe. Yes. And now now he could see both sides of the story. Before he'd been just an actor, or I say that in air quotes, but he while he might have been able to somewhat appreciate, he could not fully appreciate the stressors upon the director who has the producers, the, the, the word escapes me, the people who are funding the film, oh, um, yeah. you know, and wanting to make a product that they can then turn around and sell. So I'm glad he was able to do both acting and directing so he could see the stressors on the director uh, and experience that firsthand.
0: I was also impressed with the composition of the shots. A lot of times it was like, oh, oh, that's nice. I think he was using his artist's eye there too.
1: Yeah, I would agree with you. It was a very well done film. And despite watching it very carefully the second time over, I still could not spot him in the crowd. He was supposed to be actually in front of the camera in one scene as as an unidentified extra. And I couldn't
0: find him. It was like, where's Waldo? I think, I don't know for sure, but I think he bumped into the little old lady. Okay. As she walked to the bus. I'll have to give that a third watch (laughs) and wait for that scene. I didn't go back and rewind it, but it's like, oh, I think that was him. Oh. Okay, well, let's see. My last excerpt is from A Little Chaos. It's a little bit longer than the other ones because it involves also the editing process and the promotion of festivals and various screenings and such. Oh, it's not the last one. I'm sorry. I, I do have one more after that.
4: 2001. 26th of April, 10.40 to Dublin, p.m. Working with Alison Deegan
3: Footnote Irish actor, writer, and printmaker Wife of novelist Sebastian Barry She co-wrote A Little Chaos
4: With Alan and Jeremy Brock Sometimes a breeze Sometimes like pulling teeth But her stubbornness is valid Why give in until you understand? And occasionally we crash through To an unpredicted something 2010 10th of December. A little chaos. 9.30. The actors start to arrive. 10.15. Kate Winslet arrives. Intimate and strange to have known her at 19 and watched her become 35. 10.30. A little chaos. Its first reading. 1.00 PM. Barbuto. Kate, Gail, Egan, Andrea Calderwood, Alison, Deegan, Reema, and me. Still difficult to read, Kate. She seems to be moving forwards and backwards at the same time. 2011 30th of April Go through the last draft of A Little Chaos with Alison. 2012 13th of November Pretty much all day on A Little Chaos, eventually getting it FedEx to London. It still lives and breathes in those pages. 15th of November Today an offer, Re A Little Chaos, dependent on meeting, will go to Matthias Schoenartz. Footnote.
3: Matthias Schoenertz is a Belgian actor and film producer. The offer in question was for the role of André Le Notre in A Little Chaos. 2013.
4: Fourth of February. A little chaos. First major production meeting. 12th of February. Blenheim will take care of Versailles and Cliveton's dining room will be Louis Versailles' bedroom. Beautiful. French molding and gardens outside. We will put scaffolding outside the windows. Perfect. 19th of February. News via email that our funding is all in place. Now make Taylor proud. And happy. 4th of March. Eurostar to Paris. Good to see Kate, so happy to see Ellen, and for us all to chat all the way to Gare du Nord. Bertrand meets us, great bus, and off to Versailles. No tourist's day, so unforgettably we had the Hall of Mirrors to ourselves, and a guide who gave us all the facts we are ignoring. Louis watched in bed by 80 people, no dancing after 30, slept alone, etc., etc., 18th of March. Kate and I walk through the script, and she really takes the time to examine every loose thought, every wayward word. These are the fine tunings now, and we can't lose sight of the drive towards storytelling. 25th of March. 4 pm. Met Nick Gaster, who will edit. Fortunately, I liked him well enough. Difficult relationship months together without needing it to turn into friendship. He assumed he had the job anyway, so it was doubly lucky we got on. 16th of April. 6.15 to Cheney's. A day memorable for the beginning of the carriage crash, and for hilarity caused by my using the walkie-talkie as a telephone. 26th of April. End of week two. In the collection room with Matthias and Helen McCrory. Helen is as wild and unpredictable as ever, but taming her a little for a take here and there, and at the same time allowing for some brilliance all of her own, means that with Matthias's mystery and containment, there is some great work. 7th of May. Some great work from Kate Winslet to Matthias Schooner's today. In bed. 22nd of May. Storm in the Grove. Three drenched actors and a sodden set which years ago, it seems, was an open-air ballroom. Now the fake wind is in the tarpaulins and the fake rain arcs across relevant, visible parts of the set. Soon thunder will be added to the fake lightning. 7th of June. This is our last official day of shooting. Kate is now 16 weeks pregnant and giving everything. By the end of each day, she is wiped but still unbelievably focused. Matthias's last day today, and this sweet, questioning soul melts back to where he came from and graces his next umteen projects. 9th of June. A little chaos, last day. Like a relay race with one runner, Kate jumping from carriage to carriage to desk to bath. Lights up, lights down au revoir to Kate. She moves swiftly and cleanly on. Total commitment to everything. Ned, the children, this film, the next film, the kids' baked beans. Throwing a party. Ruthless emotional commitment. Ruthless emotional detachment. Rap party, which turned out to be a joyous thing. Chiswick House. Great venue. But all these sudden goodbyes to people who have shared the inside of your head, heart, insecurities, triumphs, have laughed, stared, and yawned with you. Now the strange absence. 27th of June. ALC edit begins. Of course, all I could see was what is wrong. How to reclaim some innocence will be the big thing. Doubtless through having the guts to show it to others. The headlines are clear. Nick cuts the action scenes really well, but doesn't always know where the heart of the scene is in the talkier moments. We spent the afternoon reclaiming some of that. Whacked by the evening. 2nd of July. I can now feel the film having a life of its own, and I alternate between wanting it finished magically tomorrow and wanting to sit there for 24 hours straight. I have, however, no idea how this film will lose 30 minutes. I cannot see what can be cut without chopping into the narrative. 16th of September, 10 Dean Street. Some BBC notes come through. As Gale says, strange they read like script notes, not edit notes. At all events, quite a few cannot be considered since they refer to a different film. We press on. Cutting, tightening... Shifting, 17th of September, 10 a.m. Dean Street, and then notes from Zygie at Lionsgate. Boy, do you have to be strong in this game. He wants it to be all Kate Matthias. what's going on in her head, and let's watch them fall in love. Everything else is peripheral, etc., etc. Yes, it is a love story. Yes, must see the inside of her head but there has to be a texture and a context for the main narrative. 16th of December 7. Screening View Cinema Fulham Broadway A cinema in a shopping mall almost on Fulham Broadway tube station. Horrible sound, music too quiet, sound effects too loud, and an echo. It felt as if it was slow, but the audience was very quiet in a good way. Patty Love came, and was knocked out and passionate that it should not be speeded up. 19th of December, 11am, Abbey Road. Lionsgate loves the film, and wants to help make it the best it can be, and is offering more money and more time for any pickups or strengthenings that occur. I am mystified and somewhat confused. We have contained and simplified, and now they are saying... "'Stitch and Expand. "'This is unpicking a sweater. "'7th of February. "'Screening for Ellen, Kate, and Matthias. "'And they liked the film. "'Maybe even loved the film. "'Although Kate is straight in with, "'Can't we? "'Why can't we? "'24th of February. "'10 a.m. Dean Street. "'I can sense Nick's exhaustion today. "'He even had a migraine in the afternoon.' Mainly, though, he knew it was the last big day, and so he just did what I suggested, knowing it had to be passed over for tomorrow morning. I think we made strides, but hard to believe that it comes down to the wire like this, and that the main hope is that we hang on to what we had back in December. 23rd of May, 3 pm, lip sync. Thank heavens, there were bumps and grinds that needed sorting. They were sorted. And now, the film is done. Fifth of June, Campagnatico. Sitting and drawing in the garden while back in London there is a screening of a little chaos. Opposite activities, but linked as I watch my hand, listen to my eyes in a parallel action to being on set, the editing room, the grade, the mix. 31st of August, 10 a.m., cast and crew screening. A unique, unnameable experience. Watching something you have made being shown to the people who helped to make it. And knowing that supportive though they may be, they will not tell a lie. 11th of September. Reviews are out. Good, bad, and indifferent. The familiar tightening of the brain. The familiar silences from the rest of the world. 12th of September. To Toronto. 13th of September, 6.30 to Roy Thompson Hall. Watch the film. At the end, after such tangible silence and laughter that came from the whole house, from people who were listening, 2,000 people stood and clapped loud and long, total uncluttered acclaim for something that had reached them very directly. 17th of October, London Film Festival, Odeon West End. 5.35, red carpet. What attracted you to this project? Times 10. 7.45, watch the last half hour. Wonderful concentration in the cinema. Huge applause at the end. Nine-ish, the union club. Friends all seriously knocked out by the film. 2015. Emails giving a rough guide to ALC tours, press junkets, and premieres. In theory, there is time to spread in Australia and time on the West Coast if there is no compunction to hair back for the Dublin Film Festival. 11th of February. News from Australia that the screening has sold out and will I do a second? Focus features still drumming their fingers about the US release date. 21st of February. Nine and Heathrow Express. 11.30 to Glasgow and the Blytheswood Square Hotel, which is kind of MDF chic. A bit of lunch, and then 3 p.m. grooming, followed by STV and print. 6 p.m., Glasgow Film Festival. A little chaos. Quick introduction, and then to two fat ladies with Alan Hunter and Corinne Orton. Nice room. Food too complicated. Back to the cinema for the post-screening Q&A, which was actually enjoyable. Huge warmth from the audience. 12th of March, Melbourne, 7pm. A little chaos screening. Watching from the back on the stairs, and oh God, here we go. Let's get back to the editing room sensation. The audience are very warm though, and they seem to have a good time during the Q&A which is the same five questions, only longer. 10th of April, Paris and back, 5.40 a.m. Finally, I guess hearing the alarm and knowing that there will be a car outside at 6 a.m. Made it somehow. 8. St. Pancras and Lorna Mann, Lionsgate publicist and Eurostar to Paris and a car to the Hyde-Vendôme Hotel about an hour in the very swish and beige suite they have given me, and then Kelly, groomer, arrives. Then to TV interviews, lunch with the ebullient Sammy H., the distributor. Print interviews, finishing at 4.20. So, really, why stay? Hightailed it to Nord and got the 6.40 home. 17th of April. The early morning silence that I know well from the past. Eventually, something from Paul. We have a fight on our hands. People love it. Critics? Some won't go there. One I would hazard wrote his review before he'd seen it. 3 p.m. Carter Broadcasting House. Edith Bowman and James King. Kermode and Mayo Interview. And those are two of the positive voices. 8.10 to the Curzon Mayfair for a Q&A after the screening. This film is so beautiful, is the refrain. 28th of May, Amsterdam. 10, Dutch Press Day. Getting pretty tired now, and I'm dumbstruck at a journalist who says she thought it clear that I saw the story as an allegory about the banking crisis.
0: Okay, so that was a little odd. Yeah, well, I
1: can't control what people see when they take a look at a piece of work. That's true. So, but the, yeah, that's, that's a little off the wall.
0: <laughs> so boy, what a long process i surprised to learn that it started in 2001, that he was already looking at that story.
1: Yeah, I didn't realize what a long process it was either. But I suppose you have to get all your ducks in a row, so to speak. The right people, the right place, the right time, the right money. There is a series on Netflix the, it's called The Movies That Made Us. And this ties in because it talks about that there's one whole episode that talks about Die Hard, which, of course, I watch because, you know, Alan Rickman. And it talked about how long of a process it was to get that movie up and running. And and it was many, many, many years that from the initial story, and it was over a decade that it took to get that story up and running and uh, into a movie. And if you do watch it, they do explain how Alan Rickman does the fall at the end. (laughs) So, but anyway, yeah, it is, it's a crazy long process sometimes to get these things going.
0: Oh, I suppose. Yeah. So, oh, that would have been interesting to, I know about the fall, but I, of course, we're not going to, you'll have to find that out for yourselves, listeners. Yes, it was well worth the watch. And let's see, going back to a little chaos, it's, I don't know, after reading through that process, and you get the feeling often that he did not read reviews in general, because he looked for other people's reactions to find out, except when he was directing, then he read the reviews.
1: I could certainly understand why he wouldn't want to. A review is so subjective, although any review about any piece of artwork, be it literary, visual, you know, as in terms of a movie or a painting on the wall, it's all so subjective. So, and from what you've said and and what he talks about in his book, it seems like some reviewers are just there to make money and and say unkind things, regardless of of what the truth of the matter might be. Right.
0: Yeah. So I had to get the movie to watch it. So thank You Amazon two day delivery. Yes, I was able to watch it yesterday. So, so that was your first time seeing a little chaos. It was, and yes, I enjoyed the story. Yes, it was long. Yeah, <laughs> but it kind of needed to be to tell the story. Yes, I think. Yes, to explain the character's trauma.
1: Yeah, the story needed to be the length that it was. Right. And if you're looking for an action film, that was not it. But if you need a good thought-provoking, well, yeah, thought-provoking movie that you can sit and watch, then then that would be it.
0: Yeah, and admittedly historically inaccurate, like he said, because well, for one thing, he danced <laughs> at the end. So, and also the the film was shot entirely in England, so no actual Versailles.
1: Indeed. I can only imagine the permitting requirements to, to
0: be able to shoot at Versailles. Oh, yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, it was it was nice to see a, a thought-provoking movie.
0: Yeah, it was more feminist, I think, a little bit. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, basically, the, the character, I can't remember her first name. Was it Sabina? Sabina Barre? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, something like that. It's been a while since I've seen that movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Works as a, what do you call it? Landscape designer? Mm-hmm. Oh, what, what do you call it? A, a, something that she took up after the death of her husband and very much not, who knows if it really would have been possible in that time.
1: Yeah. Well, I think anytime you watch a movie, you have to suspend disbelief to get your money's worth. But in this instance, yeah, I watched it the first time and thought, okay, well, that probably would not have happened with a woman in this time period, A, owning her own business, but B, owning such a male-dominated business of, you know, being a landscape architect and uh, whatnot. But it was still a very entertaining. Oh, it is. Yeah beautiful lush visually it was a it was a beautiful movie and uh, and you have that great scene with kate winslet and alan rickman in that little nursery is the word i guess where he's sitting there and she comes upon him thinking he's somebody else and you have that great scene between the two of them and then you know she realizes who he is and then it just goes on from there i just thought it was nice that all these years later these two get to be having another intimate type scene yes and and whatnot given that i mean i'm such a ginormous jane austen fan and sense and sensibility you know him as
0: colonel brandon Ugh. oh yeah <laughs> yeah i know colonel brandon yay yeah i love him as colonel brandon it's just he just does such a uh, you know
1: yeah it, he plays such a good guy and and he plays such a great villain oh yes so like diehard and robin hood and and others but yeah, so I'm sorry, I got us off track.
0: <laughs> A little chaos. Yeah, I agree. I wish it had had more success for him, for him personally, you know.
1: Yes. Well,
0: it is what it is.
1: It is what it is. And I mean, maybe at this point in his life, he was experienced enough to realize that the whole entertainment industry is a little bit of bread and circus and a little bit of the thought provoking stuff. And somewhere in there, you have to find there's a balance, Um, because sometimes people just want to be entertained and not think and but then sometimes you want to think and when you've got someone such as Alan Rickman, who is so passionate about making entertainment that makes you think I can understand why he would be frustrated with the sect of actors who are acting just to make a buck and just to produce brain candy, for lack of a better word. So hopefully by that point, by the time he made A Little Chaos, he was experienced enough to know that it wasn't going to be appealing to the masses.
0: Yes. Yeah, true. Okay, well, he was still, in fact, promoting a little chaos in 2015 when he developed a blood clot in his leg. And shortly after that, then he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. The diary sort of, it goes for a ways. Well, he doesn't do much work at that point anymore. He he voices the caterpillar in, that was the second Alice, was it?
1: Yes, it would have been the second Alice at that point. Okay,
0: yeah. And then he also narrated something for the Gordon Green Foundation, which promotes the arts. Spends time with family and friends. He still goes to shows, but eventually everything sort of tapers off. His last entry is December 12th. It's kind of (laughs) sad. It is. Yeah. Every time I've, well, I've read the whole thing three times preparing for this show and it's always kind of chilling to get to that part.
1: It is. I think he had the advantage of, well, I don't know. You could look at it one of two ways that he knew the end was coming. Pancreatic cancer is essentially a death sentence. And so it seems like he chose to keep living his life the way he had lived it, going about and doing the things that brought him pleasure and whatnot. So is knowing the end coming any better than not knowing the end is coming and continuing to be living your life blissfully ignorant? I don't know. That's not what we're here to answer, but I just found it interesting that he knew his end was coming and continued to continue on because what else were you going to do? Yeah,
0: including a trip to New York.
1: Mm-hmm. yep that may have been a little bit beyond
0: <laughs> what he <laughs> needed
1: to do but yeah uh-huh. uh, uh, their life so it's, it's sad that his life was cut short by cancer and I think it's great that Rima has gone on to do work with the um, UK Pancreatic Society or whatever they it is they're named to develop testing for it so that if there's its early warning tests then you know maybe less people would suffer
0: mm-hmm. yeah because with pancreatic cancer there's no, yeah, early test. By the time people have symptoms, it's usually progressed to an alarming degree. Little can be done.
1: No, it's just making the most out of the time you have left. Instances like Alec Trebek from the the host of Jeopardy, who found out he had pancreatic cancer, but then he lived on for what, another year or two. Yes, is highly unusual. It is unfortunate that Alan's life was cut short because I can only imagine he would have continued on, maybe not at the same pace <laughs> that he that he had throughout most of his life, but there'd be, there'd be more stuff for us to watch and appreciate.
0: Yes. Yes, definitely. So at the end of the diary, there is an afterword by by Rima Horton. She actually has a lovely voice. I know that's apropos of nothing, but yeah. But she talks about Alan's last days at that point. hmm Yep. And yeah, I didn't want to include that in our show. I just didn't feel comfortable doing that. I think that's something that you should go out and get your own copy and go over that if, you know. Indeed. However, after the afterward, there's an appendix. And that includes excerpts from Ellen's earlier diaries that he kept from, I believe, 1974 to 1982. So that would have been after he got out of RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. And there was some time with the RSC and also with regional theater. So it was early in his career. And I did actually, I have some of those excerpts here.
3: Appendix. The Early Diaries. Alan Rickman kept occasional diaries from around 1974 to 1982, and then again, more fulsomely and regularly, from 1993 to the end of his life. What follows is a selection of extracts from those early diaries, which begin after he had graduated from RADA in 1974 and chart his work with the Birmingham Repertory Theatre, Bristol Old Vic, and the Royal Shakespeare Company, among others.
4: 1974. Fine acting always hits an audience with the force and oneness of the well-aimed bomb. One is only aware of the blast or series of blasts at the time. Afterwards, you can study the devastation or think about how a bomb is made. And yet no analogy suffices. The chemistry is too variable to construct an equation. An actor is about the only artist whose instrument is himself. More or more, I think you've either got it or you haven't. What you can be taught is the recognition of having it and the attendant responsibility or how best to cope without it, and that depends on whether the teacher has it or not. It's self-generating. The more you have, the more you seem to acquire. But unlike money, you don't know where it came from in the first place, and if you think you do, you haven't got it anyway. Manchester? March 1975. At one stage here, there was a danger that my confidence had been crushed. Somehow the experience has been survived, and I stand now in a position of arrogant strength. Everything I believe in has been thickly reinforced, not through example so much as the lack of it. You can look at the lines on the page for hours on end. Watch the meanings and inferences weaving in and out of the words. Speak them, and they've gone in an instant. Leicester, August 1975. Typecasting is a deadly poison. Acting can be one's life, but that life must be rich enough to support it. Fight the temptation to disappear into your own subconscious. Leicester, December 1975. Theater is the only living way to say, here is you, here is me, This is what we do to each other. This is what we could do to each other. It is at once a celebration and a warning, a reminder and an encourager. Sheffield, January to May, 1976. What do I say about this time? A crucial time. Three big parts which have elicited from me some welcome heights and some fairly appalling depths. Footnote. The
3: parts were in The Carnation Gang by Stephen Poliakoff, Nijinsky by Rex Doyle, and Henrik
4: Ibsen's When We Dead Awaken. There must be a basic something which is right, because while keeping my mind as open as I can, things are confirmed or developed, never changed. From disillusionment or that creeping disease, it's a job. Birmingham, October 1976. That curious sensation I remember being with me all the time turns out not to be simple loneliness, although I've always felt different. It was just waiting for now to arrive. May to June, 1977. Birmingham, Liverpool, Zurich, Amsterdam, The Hague, Rotterdam, Eindhoven, Cologne. This is my head. It thinks it talks, it charms. It worries, it laughs, it hurts. It has a hundred wonderful tricks. I am proud of it. This is my body. It is funny looking. It malfunctions. It looks best in winter clothes. I have as little to do with it as humanly possible. Lucky for my body that I need it to chauffeur my head around. Otherwise, out it would go. 20th of March, 1978. This is the first day with the RSC, a long-ago dream. The taxi ride to Euston was like seeing one's life flash before the eyes, typically in danger of missing the train, and almost the last image of London was Stanhope, where the dream was conceived. Footnote.
3: Stanhope Theatre, Euston Road, was where Alan performed in
4: 1965. Typically, too, the experience is already tempered with too much disillusionment. Yet again, you're on your own, armoured for the fight. 21st of May, 1979. The dole cue, with the clock at 89, and me at 00 is the present. The RSC is now the past. The future leers at me with several faces. I gaze back, with arms folded and fists clenched. Young Vic, London, July 1979 after Desperately Yours. Footnote.
3: Desperately Yours was Ruby Wax's first show.
4: I doubt I could turn to directing permanently. Watching a first night is like being eaten by piranhas while surrounded by people taking no notice. No feedback, no release. But there are muscles there asking for the exercise. Citizens, Glasgow, January 1980. A new decade still a bit numb from declining the job I came here wanting, but the arbiter was instinct, which is some kind of advance. Two other jobs are declined, one, out of respect for my mental health, and two, my self-respect. In many ways, I am getting to recognize signs a little more clearly and obey them. In this show, I see my present hurdles in stronger focus too. Crucible, Sheffield, February 1980. My life begins to receive injections from this theatre, directly and indirectly. It is good to feel the warm blood of optimism. The Bush, London, June 1980. Rehearsing Commitments. This book is full of fateful moments. One only hopes that the hazy memory of them means that in turn they have embedded themselves in the subconscious and that the last few months have been fruitful. The Devil Himself, by Severus Rogue, was a pleasure. The pure pleasure of knowing that wonderful material can still feed the imagination, and that added to a mutual trust between performers, fragile as ever, curious magic can still be confected. The pleasure now is to work with Richard Wilson, who says, Don't act, behave and a hundred other things which for a long time had only been murmurings from the drama school days sleeper home from edinburgh august the 30th to the 31st 1981 brothers karamazov the ironies flowing from the above are infinite working with max stafford clark followed by the indescribable rehearsal period playing another introvert but giving full vent to the extrovert in me through unstoppable anger
0: Okay, so that was interesting. Lots of the philosophy of acting, I think is what he's discussing. Very interesting. You you can see kind of where some of the things he does later or talks about later is kind of got a basis here.
1: Yes. Like I
0: said earlier, I
1: think for me personally, I would have put that at the beginning simply so the reader understood, really understood Alan's philosophies on, on his career on acting and and whatnot. So that when he would vent his frustrations, you could understand why he was frustrated and not that he was being Eva, so to speak.
0: Exactly. I don't know if anybody caught the reference to the devil himself by Severus Rogue. Oh, (laughs) that's got to be a by Severus Rogue is in brackets, which means it was added in later. If anyone doesn't know, Severus Rogue is the French name for Severus Snape. So, (laughs) And uh, there certainly, if you do a search for, for this, it does not come up with anything. So I really think that this is worth investing in in however form. The hardcover is only $16 on Barnes & Noble or Amazon. I think it's like 17 for the electronic version and 18 for the audiobook, unless you have an Audible subscription or something like that. That can be different. It's, it's worth the investment, especially if you're a real Allen fan. I thought it was worth the
1: investment. It was the first hardcover book I've bought. myself in years and it was nice having a an actual physical copy i've tabbed stuff and underlined and written notes in the uh the margins stuff i found funny or stuff that i agreed with and i i now have a running list of books and movies that he has watched or read and commented on in his diaries that i now want to go investigate yes just to see what he had been reading and uh, whatnot.
0: So it's always interesting to look at somebody else's bookshelves. Mm-hmm. That's true. It's funny you mentioned writing notes in the margins and such. Jalapeno Eye Popper, or Hal, who has been on the show a few times. She said basically she's interacted by reading parts of the book that have to do with individual movies. That's another Another way to interact with the story. And she was hoping for an annotated copy from a fan. (laughs) Some fan who would look all that stuff up. (laughs) There you go. There really is quite a bit there. And I looked up quite a few things, but I didn't notate it at all.
1: Now, one of my big regrets about the book is that the uh, diaries didn't cover his time filming Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, which is one of my personal favorite movies because it's so, in my opinion, can't be over the top funny that I I just would have loved to have been fly on the wall during the filming of that because I mean, oh, yeah, he came up with some brilliant lines. So and I mean, he plays such a good bad guy.
0: Yeah, it sounds like he pretty much is behind the characterization of the Sheriff of Nottingham, that he was the one who made it so it would be over the top. Yes. They let him do that, which was, I mean, that was perfect for us. Yes. I don't think the rest of the movie is, well, it's kind of boring, to be honest. Yeah.
1: (laughs) When I, I remember seeing it in the theater and I remember thinking that the bad guy made the movie. Right. (laughs) So, I mean, Kevin Costner is a great actor and all, but the rest of the movie was like, okay, this is Robin Hood again. What is going to be different about this movie versus all the other retellings of Robin Hood? So, yeah, it was interesting that the director let him go so far off script and improvise. And I thought that was yet another good instance uh, or example of an actor and director collaborating and listening to each other and taking their feedback, like in Die Hard, his role was, I mean, he was always going to be the the head of the criminal organization, but the way they had originally were going to portray him, where he was just as much of a thug as the rest of them. Oh, and Alan Rickman came in and he read the, you know, after accepting the role and really, you know, reading the script, he says, if I'm the boss, why am I carrying the gear? Why am I dressed in the same clothes they are? I'm the boss. <laughs> Put me in a suit. And so they gave and you know, the director said, hey, you know, you're right. Gave him a mar- him a mar- Arnie suit. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's just nice when the, that kind of collaboration works well instead of, no, I'm the director and you're going to do exactly what I
0: say. Yeah, in the diary, there are definitely depictions of where it does not work.
1: Mm, yes, or there's
0: a lot of contention.
1: Uh, Mesmer comes to mind, and and I I have a copy of that, and I've watched it a number of times, and every time I watch it, I think, well, "What the hell am I watching?" Yeah. I understand it's a story about this particular person and it's vaguely biographical, but I get to the end of the story. I'm like, okay, was it just about his life? Was it just about this instance? Was it about this quasi love story that kind of didn't go anywhere? I mean, you know, and then reading about that time in his diaries, the phrase too many cooks spoil the broth came to mind. Oh yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Outside forces saying the movie has to be this, the movie has to be that and kind of came out like mud
0: he refers to lines being determined in boardrooms which is really pretty accurate much of the time unless you do indie stuff which you know he did he did some of that too
1: yeah and I, and i'm glad he did i'm glad he had that opportunity to do that more independent stuff and let his creativity really you know run off and looking at his breadth of work he there really is a little something for everybody in it
0: there is. So, yeah, this is to celebrate his ooh, would have been 77th birthday, I think. Oh my goodness. And we miss you, Ellen.
1: It would have been interesting to it, it would have been interesting to see what else he would have done, but he was so prolific. Just looking at the short list that you have here of his work. Yeah, there's so much good stuff. Yes. And what I find great about him as an actor is that he didn't. It wasn't Alan Rickman being Snape. Alan Rickman being Sheriff of Nottingham. It, it, it's he was. He stepped back and let the character do the talking. So, like, uh, if you've seen CBGB, and if you haven't, I recommend it. it I've seen it a couple times. I love it. <laughs> of course, I love that era. Yes, and the music was fantastic. Yes. And it being a mostly true story, but in that role of Hilly Crystal, if you didn't know that was Alan Rickman, you wouldn't know it was Alan Rickman because he just did such a great job of being that character or like when he played Ronald Reagan in The Butler or, you know, what's his name in Bottle Shock or, yeah, he became that character and let the character come to the forefront as opposed to, like I said, him being like like other actors.
0: Yeah, like John Wayne comes to mind.
1: Yeah, John Wayne does, whatever, fill in the blank. I can think of quite a few modern actors that I think that of, but. True. I'm not here to slam on other actors. People like them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay.
0: Well, Tasha, Tasha Yar, Mm -hmm. what's your whole?
1: Oh, yes. Tasha Yar, two, five, four, six, one.
0: Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for joining me not a problem was my pleasure you had so many good things to say
1: I appreciate you asking me to come on it was it was a privilege and I really did enjoy chatting about such a great actor
0: oh I did too all righty I guess we'll
1: just say goodbye then I hope you have an enjoyable
0: rest of your day and you too oh thanks so much you have a great day bye-bye You thank you take care bye-bye and that's the show Thanks again to Tasha Yard, 25461, for talking with me. Check out our website at snapechatpodcast.com. And here we must say goodbye. We wish we didn't have to, but it hasn't escaped our notice that life isn't fair. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Tumblr and Twitter, email us, or leave a voicemail. We'd love to hear from you. Support us on Coffee to help defray the cost of production. Many thanks to Nix for her continued work on our website at snapechatpodcast.com be sure to check out alwayssnape.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay snarky.